In the very beginning, we open with the idea in a message entitled The Unnecessary Parable that just knowing the truth of God's word doesn't really do much for you. Being convinced of the truth of the Bible is just the first step. The Holy Spirit then, through that word, will convict the heart, but even the feeling of conviction is not the ultimate objective. What God wants to see is a people who will be convinced of the truth, feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and through yielding and changing in repentance, be converted whole through and through. Conversion, restoration is the goal, the aim of objective of a study, of a sermon series, of this whole project to change people. Not just an intellectual or academic pursuit, but this is to be a genuine transformation of heart and character to be more and more like Jesus. Then we started a study, which we've been going through sequentially, step by step, of the origin and the process for the elimination of evil wickedness in this world and then the universe at large. We've been basically breaking down the great controversy. We started in Matthew chapter 13 with the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we saw how Jesus in that parable gave a synopsis of the entire great controversy process. Okay? And so Satan was originally cast out of the courts of heaven instead of merely being blotted out because though God could see in his heart, all those other unfallen beings could not. And they wouldn't have understood what God was doing. So because he created sentient, thinking, reasonable individuals, he needed to let the process unfold before their eyes so that when it was finished, there wouldn't be another controversy, that affliction would not rise a second time. So we've been walking through Christ's elimination of this evil and its originator all this week. And tonight we come to that fourth and final step. If you recall, there were four distinct steps in the casting out of Satan. And I'll walk through them briefly here, like a slinky down the stairs. First of all, God recognized Satan's iniquity that was found in him, in his heart. And instead of blotting him out of existence, like he could have, he simply cast him out of heaven and lost his place there. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. You can read that in Revelation 12, 7 through 9. How there was a war and Satan was cast out. But then in step two came when Jesus came to be incarnate, be God with us, and lived a life of complete sinless perfection obedient to every law of God. So when his end came, Satan could not say, yes, but he was a sinner like all the others. No, 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 Jesus was different. Yet all the violence that had been pent up within was finally unleashed on Jesus. And in one act, the onlooking universe saw two crucial things. Number one, they saw the character of Lucifer, Satan, fully revealed. And that if followed, he would take everything, including the life of God itself, were it possible. Yet at the same time, For the very first time in all the universe, the character of Christ was fully revealed. That he would give everything, including the life of God itself, were it necessary. And from that moment, we saw that he was cast out again. This time, not physically from the courts of heaven, but out of the sympathies of the onlooking universe. And his influence is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. But now, in our lives, in step three... 
God is looking to have a people who would recognize that character contrast and see the sacrifice made for them. And though they have been under subject to Satan, they also, like the unfallen, will say, we are on God's side and no longer do we have any sympathy for Satan in our own hearts. And that's where we're living right now. And I believe with all of my mind, Jesus Christ, if yielded to, will transform us into citizens of heaven. They will take us out of this world Maybe not immediately physically, but in a spiritual sense, we will become heirs to the kingdom through a process that only Jesus Christ can do. And that culminates, of course, with the soon second coming of Jesus. And praise the Lord, we're not at the very beginning of the process. Satan has been cast out of heaven for quite a long time now. And the cross was 2,000 years ago. And soon we're going to see Jesus come again. And that's where we're going to pick up our story tonight. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Now I'll ask another question. I introduced this subject last night in our little teaser and said our tomorrow night's subject is going to be Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. And how many of you went and actually looked it up? Praise the Lord for you extra credit first rate students. The rest of you, well, we'll pray. But Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9 is rather from a rather obscure book in the Old Testament, a very small passage, but I believe it contains the biggest promise in all of the Bible. And that's going to be the topic of our study this evening. But before we study anything from God's Word, what do we need to do first? Bow your heads with me if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you and I thank you for this day of life. I particularly thank you that now we're entering into those precious Sabbath hours and that every one of us in this room is alive to experience it together. Lord, thank you for the fellowship, the rest, the worship, and the service that you allow us to do for you over these sacred hours. But right now, Lord, in this room, at this time, I would ask that in a very special way you send your Holy Spirit to convince our minds and convict our hearts. And by a miracle of your grace, may everyone in here yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit and truly be converted and transformed into the person you want us to be. So tonight, Lord, we ask for great things because we serve a great God. Help us to see him more clearly through your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 9. Simply reads, it opens with a rhetorical question. What do you conspire against the Lord? Like, what are you thinking against God? And then he answers his own question. He will make an utter end of it. Affliction, that is sin, transgression, iniquity, wickedness, evil, call it whatever you like, bad, will not rise up a what? Second time. Affliction, iniquity, this great controversy, the rebellion that began in heaven, once it is ended, it will be ended for good. No one will ever rebel again. That's a huge promise. But it should make us think some pretty heavy questions. For example, how can God allow us freedom of choice for all eternity, yet guarantee that no one will ever choose to rebel again? Let's think about it. And I told you I'm trying to weed out of my vocabulary things like let's think about it logically because there is no other way to think. (laughs) But think about this step by step. God's going to give freedom of choice to sentient beings 
who have the option to disobey his law at any moment. Yet he guarantees that they'll never do that. Didn't all of his creatures have freedom of choice in the beginning? And didn't one of them do that very thing? What will be different this time around? How can God keep intact that freedom yet make that guarantee? It's a big question. It's a big promise. We're going to break it down tonight. The answer to this critical question is found in a study of the second coming of Jesus and the events immediately preceding and following Christ's return. Obviously, in the chain of prophetic events, the next thing on the horizon is the soon coming of Jesus. I praise the Lord we're not living in the time of just merely his first coming, and we're not living in the dark age at the 12th, 1,260 years of papal persecution. We're on the other side of that. We're in the time of the end. We're just before the second coming of Jesus. And I believe the answer to Nahum 1.9's conundrum is found in a study of these particular end-time events. Let's take a look. 2 Peter chapter 3. The apostle here speaks about these last days, the days in which I believe we're living, saying that scoffers will come in the last days. And we've talked about this earlier, but what do scoffers do? Scoff. <laughs> By definition, that's what they do. They mock, they tease, they jest, they joke. They scoff in the last days. Walking according to their own lusts. So notice they're not living according to God's word and his principles. They're doing what they want to do, and therefore they joke about the things that you believe in and hold true. Walking according to the lesson, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And of course, the apostle Peter would retort, they willfully forget that God has destroyed the world before and he'll do it again. But he goes on to explain, verses 9 and 10, he says, the Lord is not slack, or some versions say slow, concerning his promise. That is the promise of his second coming as some count slackness. Now let's just wait at that comma for a second. If someone you knew was habitually late to everything in their life, particularly maybe say their job, you would start to attribute to them motive for that lateness, would you not? You would imagine like, well, they're late again. That must mean that they, and you, there's only so many things. Number one, they're lazy. Number two, they're forgetful. Or number three, they just don't care. But has Jesus not come yet because he's lazy? No. Or forgetful? No. Or mercy that he doesn't care? No. Well, the apostle explains it. The reason it seems to our perspective that he's being slow is actually that he's being long-suffering. What's another word for long-suffering? Patient with us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? God's ultimate objective is to win as many as who want to come. So I don't want to hold off. And you could, if we stopped right there, say, well, then the Lord is going to take forever coming back. There is no time when everyone's going to be converted. Everyone's going to be convinced and convicted and changed and repent. So it just could go on forever, like the mockers and scoffers say. But notice the very next sentence. But... The day of the Lord will come. Do you see the tension in this verse? He's long-suffering, he's patient, he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to the repentance, but 
The day of the Lord will come. As a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Notice he's so definitive about this. It's not perhaps, not maybe, hopefully. He says it will. It will happen. Though he's long-suffering, the day is coming. Perhaps no other place in Scripture describes that great day and the results towards the wicked than the Revelation chapter 19. I'll read you briefly some of it. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Notice there's a sequence. Judge and then execute. Okay? But he does this in righteousness. This is clearly describing Jesus Christ in his return at the second coming. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who wrote the God, this, this prophecy? John, right? John the Beloved. And if you recall, in his gospel account, it opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And his name is the Word of God. Who is this that he's talking about? Jesus Christ. Returning in righteousness to judge and make war. He continues, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You recall in the story of the wheat and the tares that he sends out, Christ doesn't come alone when he comes again. He brings all the angels with him as reapers. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not Jesus incarnate, veiled with frail humanity, lying in a manger. This is Jesus Christ returning as King and Lord to make judgment and war. It continues with the description. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, cleaning house top to bottom in very graphic detail. In fact, it continues, in case that weren't enough, the very last verse in Revelation chapter 19 is verse 21. It said, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a very graphic depiction of the results of the second coming when Jesus comes to make war. What you see here is a complete destruction of the wicked. And here's my point to see. Disturbing as the destruction of the wicked is, at least when Jesus returns, the whole matter is finished. Or is it? Look at the very next sentence and onward in the book of Revelation. It transitions now to chapter 20, starting with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, 
That's the same Revelation chapter 12 language we saw for him, the dragon, that serpent of old who deceives the whole world, right? Who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him, there he's being cast again, into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Now I do like that part. (laughs) And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Well, let's pause right here. Give me one logical reason why he can deceive the nations no more. Because there are no more nations. Everyone who would be there is no longer there at all. And we understand the truth about the state of the dead. It's an unconscious, non-existent. They're not kind of zombie-like, halfway floating, Casper the Friendly Soul type of creatures. It's just void, empty, nothing. But it says he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Which implies, even before reading the next sentence, that at the end of the thousand years, what's going to happen to those people? Is he going to be resurrected? And it says, now notice the language, but after these things, after this thousand years, he must, not he would be, but he must be released for a little while. So when Christ comes again, let's get this picture, which automatically asks this question in my mind. Why is Satan the only wicked being to survive the second coming? You would think the epitome of all wickedness, the origin of evil himself, would surely be the one destroyed with the brightness of Christ's return. But he's not. All his followers are, yet he keeps going. Which begs the question, when's this guy ever going to die? What's it take to kill the devil? That'd be a great sermon title. (laughs) Why is Satan the only wicked being to survive the second coming? I mean, think about it. If unfallen angels who are going to dwell in heaven eternally, and the redeemed of humanity, who are going to dwell in heaven eternally, have finally rejected Satan. Why give him any more time to live? What's the gain here? What's the purpose of this thousand years? Which brings us to the core of our study tonight. Satan's continued existence beyond the second coming only makes sense when we understand God's process for judging the world. Tonight we're going to outline how God judges the world and see what role that millennium, what 1,000 years after Christ's return, plays in the great controversy and why it's a thing that must occur. And at the end we're going to see it is one of the most beautiful pictures of the character of God that we can possibly hold. While on the surface it may seem like one of the craziest, like, oh yeah, Jesus comes in 1,000 years later. Uh, Anyway, don't worry about it. No, this is central. This is pivotal, and let's study it out. All throughout the Bible history, there has been an expectation that someday God would judge the people of earth. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 says, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. By the way, if you ever want to know, what's something I should do with life? There it is. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is, your, this is everything God expects of you. For God will bring, into, bring every work into, what's our word? Judgment. judgment. 
including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, we talked about this earlier, but God is the only one who can not only see to you, but he can see through you. He's the one who can discern the motives and the intents and the character, the genuine you who is you, God alone knows. And apparently at some point, he's going to bring you into judgment, whether good or bad, completely transparent. Now, when is that judgment to occur? A great number of people in the Christian world hold to the idea that that judgment has already occurred when Jesus died at the cross. If you remember in John chapter 12, he says, now is the judgment of this world. And they say, aha, that's it. But that's not a complete sentence. Christ continues to explain what he means. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by which death he would die. He was talking about his death on the cross and saying it was the judgment of the world in the sense that the ruler of the world will be cast out and be judged by those unfallen creatures watching. But notice that the great judgment day of all the inhabitants of earth is still anticipated as a future appointment after the cross of Christ. Here we are in Acts chapter 17. Speaking to new converts, the apostle says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Can somebody say amen, by the way? Amen. That in our times of ignorance, God winks. Now that's not to say like, aha, now I know what to do. Stay dumb. No. <laughs> There's an advantage to knowing more about Jesus, and that's that you get to know more about Jesus. But then you have a greater accountability. It's like coming into any relationship. As soon as you learn what their birthday is, you've got to be responsible to remember it. Right? But some people are like, yes, speak some truth. Valentine's coming up. <laughs> but you understand, anytime you get more information in a relationship, now you're greater accountability to that relationship. Yes? And he says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to do what? To repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day. Notice that God keeps a calendar, and there's a particular time when this judgment would occur and begin in heaven. He has appointed a day on which he will judge, notice future tense, will judge the world in righteousness by the man, capital M, whom he has ordained. Who is that man? Jesus Christ. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So there is a day coming, the same Jesus who died on the cross and then resurrected and ascended into heaven, there is a day appointed in God's great calendar, his great prophetic timeline, when the judgment of humanity will begin and Christ is the judge. And notice he's looking forward to it as an appointment still to come after the cross. Are we clear? Okay, let's continue. Daniel hones in even more clearly the timing of this judgment. He says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days, that is, the Father in heaven, was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. 
the court was seated and the books were opened. This is clearly a picture of that judgment that had been foretold. Now Daniel sees it in his stream of prophetic understanding. Now notice as Daniel continues, we get to see that yes, it's after the cross, but it would be before the second coming. He continues saying, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man. And which, who is that? Jesus Christ, right? Coming with the clouds of heaven. We say, aha, there's the second coming. No, it's not. Just keep reading. By the way, that's how you dissolve, that's how you resolve every biblical issue. You just keep reading. Let the Bible interpret itself. Let it speak to its own truth, right? He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So Christ was brought into what we just read, that courtroom scene where the Ancient of Days was seated and the books were opened. And thousands upon thousands were there to witness. Notice that God does everything in a visible way. He cares what his creatures think. Then... To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. It's in this process that he makes up the citizenry of his kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Thus that same sequence we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, where the great declaration at the end of that judgment is made when Christ declares, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. Please note, it doesn't say make him unjust or make him just. Christ simply ratifies the decisions that we ourselves have made. He says, let it be. We're going to come back to this more tomorrow, okay? He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. There's a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And then he declares, behold, I am coming quickly. Notice that Christ says there's the declaration of who is saved, who is lost, who is righteous, who is wicked. And then I'm coming. Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. So he is already determined who's going to be saved and lost when he returns. He's not coming to the earth to set up judgment. He's coming to the earth to separate those who've already been judged. Clear? And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So yes, the judgment has been anticipated for eons. And even after the cross, Bible writers say it was pointed to a pointed day that it would start. And then it would conclude, and then Christ would come. Okay? Now this is an important sequence to keep in mind. What did Christ do during that judgment? Christ determines who is saved and who is lost during a judgment that takes place before he returns. Thus, when we see the biblical accounts of the second coming, we see a two different experiences of the righteous and the wicked because their cases have already determined, their verdicts have already been set. In this pre-advent judgment, a big technical term that means before the second coming, right? the pre-advent judgment, the verdict of each case is rendered by Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, he does not ask me if you're saved. And better yet for me, he doesn't ask you if I'm saved. 
Jesus Christ opens the books. He's the judge. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. He's the advocate. He's the judge. And he does it in transparency in front of all the onlooking universe. And Christ determines who's saved or lost. And the verdict is made before he returns. Are we on the same page so far? Okay, let's keep going now. Thus, when we see Jesus return, the righteous dead will be resurrected and join the righteous living in the air. We find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Amen. This passage has been so hopeful and so helpful, so comforting to understand that if we are hidden in Christ, if we abide in him, that nothing can separate us from the love of God who is in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a fascinating thing. But now at the same time, the living wicked will die, thus gathering all the wicked together in the grave. We see this again from Jesus' own explanation in Matthew chapter 13. Therefore, speaking of the parable he told and interpreting it, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. Now I want you to be careful for a little extra credit here. Notice the gathering and binding or bundling for the purpose of burning. There's a two-stage process. There's a binding and then there's a burning. We'll come to that in a minute will be gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. So he's going to gather them together, and then cast them into the fire. So clearly, there's a distinction between the saved and the lost, and their experiences are radically different when Jesus comes. Which I'll pause right here and tell you, friends, Simply living to the second coming has no inherent value. There's going to be plenty of people who live to the second coming, but don't live through the second coming. For me in my house, yes, I want to see Jesus come, and then I want to go with him when he goes, right? The destruction of the wicked at the second coming is almost complete. But Satan survives, bringing us back to our text in Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Again, the questions abound. Why allow Satan to keep living for another thousand years? What possible purpose could that serve? And how about this one? This one used to really bug me. Why kill all the wicked and then resurrect them a thousand years later just to kill them again. <laughs> you can't say, yes, here's the... When somebody asks you, what do you believe about the second coming? Well, let me tell you, Jesus is going to come, the righteous are going to go to heaven, the wicked are going to go grave, and they say, and they say that's it? Well, then another thousand years later, you're going to wake them all up, say, hey, and kill them. 
And they're like, huh? And they're like, yes, we have a message about the character of God. <laughs> Friends, let me tell you something. If you don't grasp this concept of the great controversy and what God is truly doing, yet you proclaim it, you run the risk of actually turning people off from the God you want to lead them to. We have a responsibility to actually own our beliefs. Okay? And they may not be your beliefs yet, but I want you to see that the Word of God is clear on these things. Okay? But it's a real question we should ask. Why kill the wicked and then resurrect them a thousand years later just to kill them again? Or how about this one? Kind of what we spoke to there. How does the millennium, this thousand years time, in any way demonstrate God's character of love and justice? How is it fair? Better yet, how is it even nice? What I'm about to share with you, I've studied over the last several years, and I have come to the conviction that the millennium time, the experience after Christ's second coming, is one of the most beautiful, deep pictures of the character of a loving and just God that can be painted. And I praise the Lord that Scripture teaches it. Let me share it with you. Because notice the very next verse in Revelation 20. What's the purpose of this thousand years? He goes on. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Notice it's thrones, plural, they sitting on them. This is not just Jesus Christ sitting alone now, being brought before the God the Father. This is a different scene. And judgment was committed to them. First of all, regardless of whatever we study, is it clear that there is a work of judgment after Christ returns? Absolutely. And it's not done by Christ alone. It's by them it was committed to. And he goes on to explain who they are. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So though these are the redeemed from the earth who lived through the most difficult pressures and most difficult temptations, yet they stood for the right, though the heavens fall, they did not love their lives even unto death. These are the redeemed who have been rescued out from under Satan's power that Christ says, come and sit with me for this phase of judgment. Now that's going to be a vital key. Why these people? in this work. Notice this now. Though Christ judged the world before his return, another work of judgment is entrusted to the redeemed after his return. Okay? Now, already by process of elimination, we can tell you what they're not doing. Are they determining who will be saved or lost? No. No. Clearly, Christ was working on that before he returned, and he came back with his reward with him. And, you know, the destruction of the wicked and the redemption of the righteous has already clearly demonstrated who's saved and who's lost. The verdict already has been rendered. Let's be clear about that. But there is a work of judgment, and Scripture has anticipated this. The Apostle Paul, speaking to the church in Corinth, came back to this theme, I think because of something that was going on in the church, and we'll share this with you in a minute, but notice what he says to the believers. Therefore, judge nothing before the time. And what time is that? Until the Lord comes. Oh. 
who will bring to light the, the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Judge nothing before the time. It kind of gives us a reason here why we shouldn't be judging people and condemning them or whatever, or vindicating them either way, here and now. Why is that? Because we can't see their hearts, right? But apparently there's a time coming when Jesus returns. At that time, he's going to bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. And at that time, we can judge something. But until then, judge nothing. The reason I can't judge now, I can inspect the fruit of your life. It was Christ who said, by their fruits you shall know them. Let me make a quick little pause here and explain to you a little pet peeve of mine. We've preached judge not, judge not, judge not to such an extreme that I fear that we've not only thrown out judging, but we've also thrown out judicious thinking. That we've thrown out discernment altogether. I should never judge you and condemn you or vindicate you or as if I know whether you're going to be saved or lost, but I should be able to look at the fruit of your life and experience and say, hey, that one stinks. That's not judging. That's judicious discernment. In fact, that's exactly what Paul would come back to two chapters later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In fact, I'm going to read you just directly from the scriptures. This is why you should always have your Bibles with you, because number one, I could just put some things that aren't true on there. You don't want that, but I haven't done that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, notice verse 1. What's the context of his counsel here? He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Dare any of you, speaking to the believers in Corinth, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Apparently there were petty issues dividing the church between the believers. They weren't getting along and they were taking their disputes to civil authorities and magistrates for resolution. He's like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be the church of God and you have to appeal to the unrighteous to make a good decision? And then he adds in the second verse, do you not know? It's kind of Paul's way of saying, duh. Do you not know that the saints will do what? Judge the world. And if the world, by logical extension, will be judged by you, it's like the world's going to be judged by you. Why are you going to the world to judge your matters? If the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? I tell you, I get so uneasy when I see churches can't figure out the carpet color. They're going to be given a seat at the table in the millennium judgment and they can't get along now. All right. <laughs> he goes on, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Do you understand that the universe is looking to our judicious thinking, our discernment? There's a big responsibility awaiting us. We should practice thinking now. How much more things that pertain to this life? This is one of only several, I mean, several different places in Scripture refers to this judgment to come when Jesus returns. And here he makes it explicit. The saints are going to be the one judging the world, just like we saw in Revelation 20. 
which is where I believe Psalm 149 speaks to this experience. Psalm 149, I believe, is written from the perspective of the redeemed upon the experience of their salvation, their gathering to Jesus at the second coming. Keep that in mind as we read through the psalm and you'll see what I'm saying. It says, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Why is there a two-edged sword in their hand? To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. Look at this language. To bind their kings with chains. Sounds an awful lot like Revelation 20. And their nobles with fetters of iron. Here's what they're doing. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. To execute on them the written judgment. Someone has already written the verdict, right? That was Jesus Christ. They're not there to render the verdict of who saved or lost, but they're there to execute the written judgment. That inspired commentary in those last day events, the great controversy, page 661. She speaks of this post-Advent judgment. At this time, the righteous reign as kings and priests unto God. John in the Revelation says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It is at this time that, as foretold by Paul, the saints will judge the world. Okay? Then she explains what that judgment will involve. Watch carefully. In union with Christ, they judge the wicked, comparing their acts with the statute book, the Bible, and deciding every case according to the deeds done in the body. Now pause. If we didn't have the rest of it, try not to read ahead. (laughs) Again, they're deciding every case, but they're not deciding the verdict of every case. That's already been determined by Christ alone. So what's left to decide? then the portion which the wicked must suffer is meted out according to their works and is recorded against their names in the book of death. Of the many, many issues I have with the false doctrine of an eternally burning hell, aside from the, man, somebody who only sinned for 70 years gets 70 trillion plus years of punishment, Is it the guy who sinned for 50 years gets the same 70 trillion? And this guy who sinned for 16 years gets the same 70? It's not fair. Not only is it far too long, but it doesn't take into consideration any variation in the case. It's one sentence for every crime. And that doesn't seem fair. We would balk at such a system here on earth, and we're finite fools. Is that really the best that God can come up with? I tell you what, let's burn everybody. Forever! 
doesn't make sense. Which, by the way, is the exact same problem with the instantaneous annihilation concept. That's not fair either. Are you telling me that, let's say that there's a 28-year-old punk, I mean a jerk. He had a bad attitude. He was rebellious against his parents. He was selfish. He was thieving. Had no interest in God. Every religious thing, he gave a gesture and turned the other way. And he dies in a car accident. Okay. Let's say he's lost. Again, I'm not judging. This is hypothetical. But if he were, is it fair that he and Adolf Hitler get the same punishment? Is that really how God's infinite wisdom is going to determine? So let's say that there is a differentiation between each case, that there is a distinction between the individuals, that there's uniquenesses involved. Okay. Who determines what is what? And the automatic answer is Jesus. Well, of course. And notice that this work is done in union with Christ. He doesn't say, all right, redeemed. Tell me what I should do with those wicked. See ya. He doesn't do that. He's there in the whole process. But for some reason, he calls them into his deliberations on this question. Why? And the answer that dawned on me has given me great peace. Think of how awful it would be if he took in someone who had never experienced sin from an experiential, I have been a sinner perspective and said, all right, you come and tell me what we should do with these sinners. That's no good. He doesn't call the, in fact, what he does, he brings into his deliberations the only individuals in heaven who have at some point been where these lost have been. He says, guys, I want you with me when we do this. Now this, what I'm going to say now is my sanctified imagination. I hope I'm right. Could be wrong. Imagine that case by case comes up and they review the race. He said, I want you in front of everybody. I want you to tell me what you think would be fair. What is just? What would justice look like in this case? And for every name, he's got a sealed envelope. He says, take your time. You've got a thousand years. Give me a sentence for each of these. And in each one comes up, they say, all right, we believe this is fair. Christ is like, okay. He says, let me show you something neat. He opens up the sealed envelope. He's like, here's what I wrote down. And each one matches perfectly. Because even Jesus Christ, holy and wonderful as he is, has never sinned and come out from under that. He's held the weight of guilt on him, but not from his own perspective. He says, I was the sacrifice, I was the substitute, but you were the ones bought back. And in union with Christ, they judge the wicked. Let me tell you, friends, I have no intention of being on the wrong side of this judgment, first and foremost. But heaven forbid, if I were to be lost, I don't want Gabriel coming up with my sentence. I want my Savior, Jesus Christ, 
and whoever else was closest to me in this life. If it's Jesus and my mom, okay. If it's any of you, no. <laughs> uh uh. Because there needs to be a distinction between the cases. You can't have one punishment fit every crime. But how do you make that the most fair thing you can do in all the universe? You bring the only group who's truly experientially sympathetic to sit at the table and say, let's come and let us reason together. In this post-advent judgment, the sentence of each case is rendered by Jesus Christ in cooperation with the redeemed. Removing all doubt as to his fairness and justice, Christ invites the redeemed, the only inhabitants of heaven who can fully sympathize with the wicked, into his deliberations about the destruction of the lost. Thus we read at the conclusion of the thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, which is code language for the resurrection of the wicked will take place. Now he's free to deceive and distract and tempt and discourage and whatever else he does. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth to gather them together for repentance. Is that what it says? No. Has Satan's heart changed after this thousand years? Nope. By the way, some of the saddest words in Scripture right here. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Friends, do you think that the wicked want the kingdom of heaven too? Sure. Thieves like streets of gold too, right? I'm guessing crooks enjoy the thought of swimming with dolphins or sliding down giraffe necks or flying to wherever and doing everything and living for... I mean, there's a lot of perks to being in heaven. They want the kingdom. They just can't stand the king. They're willing to take it by force, to coerce it, but to attain it by conversion. I'd just rather not. Thus we read, still in Revelation 20, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and notice this, and books were opened. Notice that the books have been opened before when the unfallen got to see the verdict rendered for each case. The books were opened again at the, during the thousand years when the redeemed get to see behind the scenes in the great controversy, get to see the hidden things of the heart and the motive of every person. And now... Think about the magnanimity of this. Christ opens those same books to the wicked and says, you take a look. Here I am. Here's God's law. Here's the conditions of being part of this kingdom. And here's the character that you formed and the life that you had. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Notice the judgment is individual to each person according to what they have done. I'm not punished for your sins. I'm punished for mine. 
That's it. So let's break down what we've learned. The wicked are the only ones who had yet to see the contrast between Christ and Satan in this whole four-step fall process. Think about this. The wicked who were dead when Christ came didn't even know it happened. They just stayed dead. Right? The living wicked just joined them in the graves. They were bound together in the grave. But now they get to see Jesus. By the way, the millennium, the end of the millennium, is the only time in the universe's history where every sentient creation of God is alive at the same time. The unfallen angels, the fallen angels, the righteous redeemed, the wicked, everybody at the same time, in the same place, in Jesus speaking to them face to face. And the wicked are the only ones who haven't had that chance yet. And you might be tempted to think, well, what difference does it make? They're going to be dead anyway. Think about it, friends. God cares what even the lost think of him. He's like, I want to win you too. And even if you're not converted by it, at least you're convinced that it's right. So that when it's all done, nobody can ever say, you know, God, if you'd have only given them, he's like, I've given them every piece of information, every opportunity. Their lostness is on them. I told you I was unwilling that any should die, but that all should come to repentance. But now they get to see. This isn't another chance at salvation. I'm not preaching some heretical like, there's another chance. No. This is simply their time to understand why they're lost, and at the end they would acknowledge that it was the right decision. The wicked see they would not be satisfied living in God's pure kingdom. They want the kingdom, but they hate the king. And God says, look, I'm going to be here for like ever. Would you even want to be with me? And they're going to be like, yeah, you're right. I'd rather just not be than have to be with you. <coughs> then let him who is unrighteous be unrighteous still. Notice the pathos in God's voice here in Isaiah 45. He says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. And notice what he defines as every. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. That's the righteous declaration. To him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. This every knee and every tongue includes both the righteous and the wicked. Look at these closing paragraphs, just a few thoughts here from the Great Controversy, page 670. For thousands of years, this chief of conspiracy has palmed off falsehood for truth. But the time has now come when the rebellion is to be finally defeated and the history and character of Satan disclosed. In his last great effort to dethrone Christ, destroy his people, and take possession of the city of God, the arch deceiver has been fully unmasked. Now even the wicked see his true character. Those who have united with him see the total failure of his cause. Christ's followers and the loyal angels behold the full extent of his machinations against the government of God. He is the object of universal abhorrence. In the beginning, only God could see what was going on in his heart. Then the unfallen angels saw it at Calvary. 
than the redeemed saw it in the life of Jesus and were converted by God's grace. And now even the wicked, he's, Satan was the covering cherub. He had universal influence, and step by step that influence has been whittled down till no one is left on his side. Satan sees that his voluntary rebellion has unfitted him for heaven. He has trained his powers to war against God. Notice this, the peace, the purity, peace, and harmony of heaven would be to him supreme torture. If God were to let him in when he didn't fit in, heaven would be hell. His accusations against the mercy and justice of God are now silenced. The reproach which he has endeavored to cast upon Jehovah rests wholly upon himself. And now Satan bows down and confesses the justice of his sentence. Mercy. Every question of truth and error in the long-standing controversy has now been made plain. The results of rebellion, the fruits of setting aside the divine statutes have been laid open to the view of all created intelligences. The working out of Satan's rule in contrast with the government God has been presented to the whole universe. Satan's own works have condemned him. God's wisdom, his justice, and his goodness stand fully vindicated. It is seen that all his dealings in the great controversy have been conducted with respect to the eternal good of his people and the good of all the worlds that he has created. Friends, the way that God is eliminating evil from this universe is not just a way or a good way. It is the only way that will ever actually work. From our perspective, why is it taking so long? God's just doing due diligence so it will never have to happen again. The history of sin will stand to all eternity as a witness that with the existence of God's law is bound up the happiness of all the beings he has created. With all the facts of the great controversy in view, the whole universe, both loyal and rebellious, with one accord declare, just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Which leads me to this closing point. A preacher friend of mine said it and I stole it. God's going to take everyone to heaven, comma, who would be happy there. Let me just make it as simple as I can. The purpose of this life is determine whether we even want the next life. The whole purpose of this life is to learn of God, to know of Him, and choose this day whom we will serve. We're going to bring this back tomorrow morning when we talk about it a little bit more, but God wants everyone there. And the only reason we wouldn't be is because we chose not to. We wouldn't be happy there even if He let us in. It would be to us supreme torture. So Nahum 1.9 in conclusion. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. The answer to the riddle is simply this. The way you can leave intact every creation's ability to choose, yet guarantee what they will choose, is to give them 
all the information they can possibly ever need and let them choose, seeing all the results, seeing every motive, seeing every trick, everything laid out in full display, clear transparency. So that everyone who ever lives will know what rebellion looks like in the end. And God will simply say, are you in or not? And I don't know about you tonight, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Friends, through this whole week, I've been talking about how the word of God is so powerfully true, so incredibly clear that it should convince our minds that Jesus Christ is true and that he's just and that he's loving and he loves you. And it should convict our hearts that perhaps there is something in our life that does not square with his government and his law and his ways. And right now, though we might want to get into heaven, we realize we may not fit. And there might be a conviction on your heart saying, Lord, I don't want to just merely hope to get in. I really want to genuinely fit in. I want to be a citizen of your kingdom. And that conviction weighs heavy. And what I'm asking tonight, friends, is that you will yield to that conviction and let that conviction lead to conversion, to restoration into the image of God so that when Jesus comes to take us, it'll be like going home. Two questions. Number one, did our presentation tonight at least make sense? Was it clear? Praise the Lord for that. And my second question, if you have sensed not only that the word is true, there's a conviction in your heart that says, Lord, I may not be in harmony with that word. And you know that there's a need to change. I'm not going to ask you to come down front. I haven't arranged for soft music to be played. But in the quiet of the moment that we're going to pray, I would appeal to you. I would be remiss as a preacher of the gospel not to appeal to your heart, to yield to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and say, Lord, I don't just want the kingdom. Help me to want the king himself. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for so many things. But tonight on this occasion, I thank you for Jesus, for creating us, for redeeming us, for being our judge, for being our king, and for being a thorough, fair, and just God. Lord, every person in this room is alive right now. We're not guaranteed tomorrow, but we do have today. So, Lord, help us to redeem the time. Help us to not settle for a superficial, convenient relationship with Jesus, but give us a genuine desire for true commitment. Lord, right now in this room, I'm certain that there is someone who's not only convinced of the truth, but convicted that there needs to be a change. And I don't know what that change is, but you do. And I'm going to ask that you would press on that person's heart relentlessly. Let there not only be convincing and convicting, but Lord, through your Holy Spirit's power, converting 
Because Jesus, we do want you to come. We want you to come soon, but it is my prayer that when you come, that not one here will be missing. So then, Lord, keep us faithful. Grow us into your image and make us citizens of heaven, starting even right now tonight. For we pray this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.